Good morning. Glad you guys could all be here with us, as Chris said, making it uh, here through the, the rain. I'm not in a, a, a huge, rabid Seahawks fan like many of, you, but, many of you, but I do have to make the obligatory comment, I suppose, after yesterday's win. Go Hawks! I, I was noticing, even the lapel mic, you can see blue and green right there, so even the lapel mic is a Hawks fan, so... Well, glad you're here. Um, my name is Nate Greenland, one of the elders, one of the pastors here. You don't see me up here uh, as often. Um, usually it's Sam or Chris. Uh, but I'm up here, and I have the privilege today to, to share God's word uh, with you. And one of the reasons I'm up here, uh, though I still lack great skill in preaching and, and delivering God's word, is that we're a church planning church. Uh, we want to see God's body and bride raised up uh, throughout the state, throughout the country, throughout the world. To plant churches, you need pastors, and so you have to train men and raise them up. And so, in a sense, I, I'm in training. I don't share that to uh, tell you, go easy on me, be, be kind. I, I share that just for you to be excited that, and keep that vision forefront, front of mind, that we are a church on mission, always going, always looking to spread the fame and the name of God further, um, and for you to be encouraged yourself. How might I be uh, even more part of that mission? I'm going to start off before we... Dive into the word just with a word of prayer. So if you would, go ahead and bow your heads with, it, with me. Fathers, uh, as was prayed earlier this morning, we, we're here in a lot of ways just out of routine, out of habit. And uh, we do, God, want to expect you here this morning. We do want to meet you. I want to be changed by you, God. I know there's so much more uh, in this life. I don't want to be on cruise control um, I want all of us, God, to find what we're looking for, really, deep down. That calling that, that you have on all of our lives to be walking in the Spirit, in step with you. Finding our deepest joy, God, in making much of your name, in bringing you glory. So I, I just I pray over this time that um, my words would be yours, that you would be with all of our ears, all of our hearts, Father, to receive your word deeply, to bear the fruit that you intend to bear. We have that utmost confidence, God, that that's going to happen because you are sovereign, you are mighty, and you are good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, and I, I really hope you do, uh, please uh, turn to Matthew 3, and we'll be reading out of 13, verses 13 through 17 today. Um, before we get there, just a, a quick setting of the stage. Uh, when we last heard about Matthew, we were in chapter 2, and uh, he was a toddler, we fast-forwarded some 27 years of his life, just like that. Matthew says very little about him uh, in the intervening years. Last week, in the first part of chapter 3, Chris was preaching on John the Baptist and how his baptism was a, a baptism of repentance, calling Israel to prepare for the coming kingdom. And that's where our text picks up today. Again, Matthew three thirteen through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you? Do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom... I am well pleased. 
Here in Matthew 3, we are reading about the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And as we're, uh, we'll see in the weeks that follow, this event right here sets the tone, it sets the trajectory for the rest of Jesus' life. And it even foreshadows uh, in Matthew's gospel the kind of ex- the person that we can expect Jesus to be. We already saw hints of who he might be. Don't forget, he is the God-man. He is God, but don't forget his humanity. He is still a human being. And so we saw hints in his infancy and of who he would be, this sort of situation he was born into, which was just treacherous. It was unregal, undignified. It was poor. And so we already saw hints of well, who this man might become. But those were circumstances that were out of his control. Those were things that he had no control over. And so now we have adult Jesus. And we will get to see what the rest of his life, his short life, is going to look like. Carly and I have two sons trying to adopt a third and a fourth. And I'm amazed week after week as I watch these two boys grow up before us, seeing their personalities come out. And so it's seeing those things, how Ethan's very analytical, loves science and math, loves to figure out things work. Caleb's very relational, just loves to joke around, is a little sly, a little tricky. Um, Seeing their personalities and knowing what we're praying for them to be, I have a sense of who they're going to become, but the road is still wide open before them. Still a mystery. As Matthew turns his narrative away uh, from John and back to Jesus, who's now an adult, he uses a couple details to highlight and to show us the kind of humility and grace that we will see in Jesus in the rest of his gospel. And that first detail is just to remind us where Jesus came from, from the region of Galilee. And that's where he leaves it. Mark adds further that Jesus came not just from Galilee, but from Nazareth, his backwater town. Nathaniel Riley remarks in uh, chapter 1 of John's Gospel, can anything, I mean really, Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's this backwater, off the beaten path kind of place. This is not the sort of place that kings on their ascension to the throne come from. But it's not just where Jesus comes from, it's where he's come to that Matthew points out to underscore the humility, the humbleness of Jesus. Jesus is taking a lot of risk coming to gather with this group of sinners who say, we're sinners, we're broken, we need repentance, we need salvation. He's taking a lot of risk. What would the people think of him? Oh, he's just like us. He's just, he's broken. He's just as warped as we are. What if he is misunderstood? He's about to launch his ministry, and there's great risk here that the people won't really mind what he has to say. He's just talking out of his mouth, out of both sides, uh, because he's just a sinner like us. So he's taking a lot of risk. If he wants to gain their trust as Messiah and the Son of God, this is not really the wisest way for him to start off. It's not just his identification with the people. That's what he's doing as he gathers in the waters of of baptism there in the Jordan. That shows that this is no ordinary king. It's where he's about to get baptized, in the Jordan River. And we learned last week this is not a, a very clean, pristine, you know, dip a cup in, take a drink kind of place. This is filthy water. But more than that... It's also a river that feeds the lowest spot on the whole earth, the Dead Sea, which is the Dead Sea about 1,300 feet below sea level, which is just kind of mind-boggling. So this river, as one might expect, goes down quite a bit. In God's comical and cosmic providence, his son has been brought to a place to be baptized, the Jordan River, whose name means 
the descender. How else do you describe the life of a king, King Jesus, from his incarnation to his execution, than one of a long descent into our broken, sinful world? So John's baptism, as Christ preached uh, and pointed out last week, was one of calling sinners to repent in preparation for the coming king. So why is Jesus coming to John to be baptized? He has no sin to repent of. He has no need to confess anything. In the prior verses, John spent a lengthy amount of time railing against the Pharisees and the Sadducees, basically telling them they're not worthy of his repentance, basically saying, just get out of here. You're not ready, you're not worthy. On the flip side of that, here he rightly tries to stop Jesus. He says, you come to me? No, I have need to be baptized by you. Essentially saying, Pharisees weren't worthy. This baptism isn't worthy of you, Jesus. And Jesus acknowledges as much. In verse 15 there, he says, let it be so now. You're right, John. This is a little backwards. This isn't really, in some regards, how it would be if, if things were kind of normal. But, but let it be so for now, he says. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That is a curious phrase. When we think of righteousness, we often think of this perfect fulfillment of the law. Jesus himself says in Matthew 5 that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. There wasn't any specific command, though, in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, commanding people to be baptized. So there was no law in that sense for Jesus to fulfill and walk in. Scholars are somewhat divided on what exactly Jesus meant by this, but it seems like the most plausible explanation to me is that it was simply because it was the will of the Father for him to be baptized by John. As an obedient son, as the second Adam, as the one who was to stand in our place, he had to obey, to submit to the will of the Father, to fulfill all righteousness, even when it doesn't make sense on the face of it. Church, don't miss the importance and the glory of Christ fulfilling righteousness on our behalf. How many times, weekly if not daily, do you and I think that we know better than God? When he's impelling us to do something or maybe when he's saying, don't do that. We have this crack team of lawyers, therapists, who have no problem in our minds, in our hearts, finding reasons why, well, yeah, it's maybe what God's saying, but I can do this or it's, no, I don't need to do that. We find ways to weasel out of it, whatever it is he's leading us to do or, or calling us to, to stay away from. Jesus could have said, this, this whole baptism thing, this is a bunch of garbage. This is, there's no command in the Bible. I'm a, I'm a sinless man. I don't need to be baptized. He could have shrugged it off. He could have reasoned his way out of it. Instead, he recognized that the greatest prophet to walk the face of the earth was in their midst, commanding all of Israel, which he was an Israelite, to be baptized. So as our substitute, Jesus needed to obey God's prophet. Yes, God himself, and fulfill all righteousness. This is what I don't want you to miss. It wasn't enough for Jesus to die on the cross. That's often what we say, and it's, I think it's a little too narrow, that he had to die to cleanse us and wash us away from our, wash away our sins. That is so true. But Jesus could have killed him, or excuse me, God could have killed Jesus as a baby. He could have had him killed as a baby, and we already saw that, no, he didn't do that. He actually delivered Jesus, sending him down to Egypt. He didn't 
do that just so that Jesus' little baby arms could stretch a little further out and, you know, actually uh, fit on a cross there. No, he waited because Jesus had to live a life of righteousness, of perfect obedience to the Father. Contrary to that bumper sticker that we've all seen around there, I'm not perfect, I'm just forgiven. Christianity is so much more than that. We're not just forgiven. We are imputed with the righteousness of Christ. That is ours as well. If we were just forgiven, we'd be in a sore spot still. We would still be separated from relationship with God. We wouldn't maybe be going to hell. I don't know what it would look like exactly even. We need that righteousness to have relationship with God. So that's good news. He has done everything perfectly that we, even our baptisms, have marred by sin. I mean, how many of us have maybe been baptized? If you've been baptized, thinking, a lot of pressure, my family wants me to, everyone else is doing it. That's something I know with our boys that I'm kind of reluctant to, and, and they haven't been asking, but if they had a bunch of friends getting baptized all of a sudden, I would press them hard. Why do you want this? But with all of our double motives, we can take confidence and rest in peace that he has fulfilled every act of obedience perfectly, where we have marred them, twisted them, and failed them. So that was the explicit reason that Jesus came to be baptized. But there are several implicit, beautiful, rich reasons as well. One of them is just Jesus' credibility. Clearly, John has a lot of um, regard within the, the Israelite community. People are coming out to him in masses, not to hear a feel-good, your best life now sermon. No, they're coming out to get punched in the gut, slapped in the face. So they clearly have a lot of regard for John. And it's to G, or excuse me, uh, Jesus comes out to John, who the, the people have a high regard for already, and John is the one who says, I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. I'm not worthy to baptize him. He must increase, I must decrease. So that just naturally elevates in the people's eyes who Jesus is, who this person is among them. And more than that, it validates John as well. Not only does it give credibility to Jesus, but it validates the work that John has been doing, and he deserves it. He has been on mission for the king and for the kingdom. It would be easy to look at John and to think that this is just some self-righteous nut job, wearing camel's hair, eating bugs, eating honey, that he's just doing all that just so you are darn well sure that he is just a goody-goody two-shoes so he can feel good about himself and make sure that you know what a good guy he is as well. It would be easy to think that. We've been around those people before. We've been, no, we often are those people. Make sure that we're doing what we're doing so that other people see it and just know how good we are and how much we're walking with God. When our hearts are filled with that kind of self-righteousness and that pride over how we're following God, we are so much more inclined to point out the sin in other people and so quick to just kind of minimize, downplay the sin in our own lives. And you might say, well, isn't that what John's doing, though? I mean, isn't he just slapping people across the face, pointing out their sin to them? Yeah, kind of, but not with that same heart, not with that same spirit. Because when Jesus shows up, he doesn't say, yeah, Jesus, get him. Smoke him with fire. He doesn't call down fire like some of his disciples later on. I think there's an unrepentant city, and, and they ask Jesus, should we, should we call down fire? I mean, they're not, they're not hearing your word. Let's smoke them. Not just completely missing the gospel and missing the heart of God. That's not, Jesus, that's not John's response here, though. John's response is, I, I have need. I am not worthy. He's not concerned when God shows up about the sin of others. He is most concerned about the sin in his own heart. 
and in his own life. And it's that heart and that ministry that Jesus dignifies and commends and blesses by inviting John, who is still a sinner, to baptize the sinless one. And it's also a third implicit reason uh, in Jesus being baptized by John. Again, doesn't make sense on the face of it. It's the performance of the first miracle. And you're probably thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. First miracle is wedding at Cana, turning water into wine. I read this passage uh, in studying and preparing from uh, a theologian, Frederick Bruner. I just thought it was beautiful, and it, it really hits home. So I'm going to just read it uh, word for word here. I consider this incident Jesus' first miracle, the miracle of his humility. The first thing Jesus does for the human race is go down with it. Deep into the waters of repentance and baptism, Jesus' whole life will be like this. It is well known that Jesus ends his ministry on a cross between thieves It deserves to be well known that he begins his ministry in a river among sinners. From his baptism to his execution, Jesus stays low at our level, identifying with us at every point, becoming completely one with us in our humanity. That is miraculous. We ought not gloss over that and just pass over that. That this God-man humbles himself so greatly. And again, all these things really pointing to and foreshadowing the road that he's walking, ending in the cross. There's at least one other significant thing that God accomplishes through Jesus' baptism that we'll touch on uh, a little bit later. But before we talk more broadly about what baptism is, I wanted to point out something in this text that is so applicable for all of us. What does John confess to Jesus? When Jesus comes to him to be baptized, he says, I need more. I need you. I am not complete. I am still a sinner. I am broken. He has not arrived. He has not conquered all of his sin. All of his ducks are not in a row. And yet, he is in ministry. He is on mission. He is serving God and his kingdom. That's exactly what we see and read in the life of Paul the Apostle too. Another person that we as Christians were so inclined to just make a divinity, to put on this pedestal of of perfection and that we cannot reach ourselves. Listen to what Paul says, though, out of Philippians 3, 12 through 6. Not that I've already obtained all this or already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let all of us, those of us who are mature, think this way. And if anything, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true, or another scripture says, live up to what we have already attained. If you are in Christ, you have attained a lot. Your sins are forgiven. Righteousness has been bestowed on you. You've been engrafted into a body. You've been given gifts as well for the upbuilding of that body. Don't think that you need to wait to get those ducks in a row more, that you need to know more scripture, better theology. Those things are all true. We ought to be growing in our character and likeness of the Son, but don't wait for those things to happen before you engage in ministry and in service and be on mission. If you wait, those things often don't come until we're actually engaged in ministry and service. We don't grow until it's through those things we realize how much we lack, and how much, as John said himself, I need. 
again, notice, John isn't waiting to be perfect. He's just on mission, and God is with him. So this passage somewhat begs the question, what is baptism anyway? So much can be said, sermons upon sermons. We're going to talk about it um, months down the road when we get to the Great Commission. And so I, I want to keep this part short, but I just want to say two things about it briefly. One is that it's not necessary for salvation. And we know that just, again, I think many of us have heard this, just the thief on the cross. He didn't ask his Roman reps for a two-minute timeout to hop down and, and get baptized uh, before being executed. He was nailed to that cross, and Jesus tells him, seeing his repentance, seeing his trust, his contrition over his sin, today you will be with me in paradise. So if baptism isn't necessary for salvation, what's the point really then? I mean, if all we were trying to do is avoid hell, there wouldn't be much point. But if we're in pursuit of giving our lives over more and more to the king, to our creator, to our redeemer, to maximize his glory and to increase our joy, then it's hugely important. First and foremost, because King Jesus commanded it, again, when he gave the Great Commission. Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If anyone didn't need to be baptized, it's Jesus. Sinless. Perfect. And if anyone had, as we've already mentioned, the greatest risk of association through baptism, it was Jesus. If he, Jesus, didn't need it, risked the most, God baptized. What is our excuse? So it's not necessary for salvation, but it is necessary for obedience to the king. Picking the text back up in verse 16, we read what happened immediately after Jesus' baptism. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up out of the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. One of the amazing things about the incarnation of Jesus is that while only one person of the Godhead, the Son, took on flesh, the heavens are ripped open, and we get to see all three persons displayed in glory. Here in two short verses, we see the Father God speaking words of love, a benediction over his Son, and we see, this spirit, excuse me, we see the Spirit of God descending on the Son. The Trinity was present at the creation of the world. We read in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image, and in our likeness. But what's the us? Is it a, a quadrinity? Is it two people? We're, we're not sure. It's a little foggy. It does say the Spirit was over the waters, but we're not sure exactly who this God is. And, and here, at Jesus' baptism, we see a greater revelation of who God is. We see the Trinity again, but much more clearly and explicitly. This time moving from saying, let us make man in our image, to essentially let us save man. It gets even richer. Underscoring that mission of salvation that the Trinity is on here, we see the Spirit descending like a dove. And if you know some Bible stories from Sunday school, you've read your Bible, that might, what image, what story comes to mind when you think of a dove? Anybody? Noah. And in, in Noah's account, we know that God flooded the whole earth in judgment for sin, covering the whole earth with water. And as the waters begin to recede and land pops out here and there, Noah sends a, a dove out from the ark. 
And that dove comes back with an olive branch in its mouth, signifying at least two things. That's one and two, not one each. One of them is that peace of God, that judgment has been satisfied, and God finds favor with man again. But the second thing is that there is a new world springing forth, ready for Noah to enter into. And that's what's happening here. Jesus is inaugurating the kingdom is here. It's in your midst. The dove is descending, saying there is peace. There is a new world. Come into it. Receive it. While we're on the topic of the Holy Spirit, can I just make one request for 2014? Can we work together to stop referring to the Holy Spirit as an it? He is not a member of the Adams family. That ugly, hairball thing. I mean, if, if I hear you talking about going out to dinner with your spouse last night, you said, yeah, we had a good time, you know, it, it talked a lot, and it didn't really like its meal. I'd, I'd kind of look at you and say, look, we need to talk, we need some counseling, because the relationship seems a little rocky there. He is a person. He is a he. So let's recognize that. He is not the Jedi Force. He is not Obi-Wan, whatever. I, I, my Star Wars, I apologize, Star Wars fans, it's not great. But he is a person. So let's, I'm not going to grill you on that if you say it, but just, just something to think about and, and begin to incorporate. Because that's what's going on here, is we are seeing God more fully in his Trinitarian nature. And let's just, just receive that deeply and recognize that it is, he is three persons. So not only do we see the Spirit of God descending as a dove, but we also, those gathered there, hear something that all of Israel has not heard for 400 years. The voice of of God breaking into their world. Now at the launch of Jesus' public ministry, the Father speaks monumental words over his Son to make it clear to all Israel that this is no ordinary man. Here on the cusp of Jesus' public ministry, I think you see the ecstasy and the delight of a father who's known that his son was always destined for greatness. But not the greatness as the world defines it. This is the greatness of a suffering servant whose constant ambition and drive and desire in life is to make much of the Father, to do that by obeying his will, to give his life as a ransom for many. Turn with me to Isaiah 42, 1 through 7. And this is that other reason I referenced earlier of why was Jesus baptized, this other implicit reason, to identify him to all of Israel as the suffering servant. Isaiah 42, 1 through 7. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Sounds familiar. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says the Lord, the God who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness, speaking to this suffering servant, speaking to his son now. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people and a light for the nations. To open eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prisons, those who sit in darkness. So the Father's words here, spoken over Jesus at his baptism, they aren't just generic, 
I'm proud of my boy kind of words. God makes it abundantly clear that this is no ordinary man. He is the long-awaited Messiah who has come in all humanity and all lowliness and all humility to be a covenant for the people and a light to the nations. He is the king like we've never seen before and that he restrains his power and he comes in meekness as a suffering servant. So leading up to both these remarkable events, the, the Spirit descending and the voice of God appearing for the first time, Matthew uses two words that at first blush seem like they might be just throwaway words. They're just filler. Ironically, that word is, is behold. It's look. Notice. He uses it 40 times in his gospel, more than any other New Testament book. What he's trying to do here is to rivet our attention, the reader, the hearer, on what's going on, on the Trinity. This is his way of doing bold, underlined, italics, OMG, exclamation point, so the reader doesn't just keep on reading on, listening on, and not pause to take it all in. He's commanding you and me to look, to be amazed, to be stunned, to marvel, to be awestruck and dumbfounded at the fact that our God is a triune God. He is one God existing in three persons. That is mind-blowing. It almost seems like a contradiction, though it is not. We could go into that. But it is also amazing because we have such a richer understanding of who God is through these relationships. If I meet you, we have coffee, I get to know you somewhat. But if I meet your spouse or your significant other, I meet your kids, I meet your family, I have a much greater sense of who you are based on all those other relationships you have. I know more about you. And that's what we have, the advantage we have with our God being our triune God, not just one person, but three persons. So we should behold first and foremost the triune God as an act of worship and see their relationships, how the, the Son and the Spirit yield to the Father and the Father takes the light and the Son. There's a synchronicity. There are these harmonious, working, beautiful relationships there. If our God wasn't satisfied in himself, I know growing up, I kind of had that thought, well, God was lonely. He created because he, he, he wanted a relationship. He wanted people to play with. And that's, that's just false. It, it's heresy. God is completely satisfied, subsistent in himself. And if he weren't, he would not be a God worthy of our worship. So we behold it, him, the triune God, as an act of worship, first and foremost. Simply to reflect back to him his perfections, his beauty, his glory, But we also need to behold the Trinity and to stare at his completeness because it's a source of strength and security for us. Think about it. I don't know about you, but growing up, my parents had a a few arguments. Of course, they always said, these are discussions, honey. These aren't arguments. But when voices are raised, kind of get a little nervous. And there were two arguments, I remember, discussions, excuse me, growing up, where mom and dad needed to cool off. So mom took off one time, dad took off another and went driving for a couple hours. As adults, that makes sense. We know that. We've maybe been there. We've had those sort of things. Just need to breathe. need to walk away. But as a seven, eight, nine-year-old child, I was terrified. The bottom dropped out of my life. I didn't know if mom or dad was coming back. My world got rocked upside down. I'm sure many of you have had that experience, or maybe even worse. So we see, again, the source of strength that we can have, that our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever that there is harmony, that there is love, there is relationship, there is fellowship in the Trinity by himself, apart from us. Our parents 
They're squared away. They're solid. That's source, and that's strength for us. But holding not only gives us security and stability, though, it gives us motivation to change. I don't know if you ever are with another married couple, maybe, if you're married, or, or just another brother or sister that is just so in love with God, they're walking with God, their life is so on mission, you want to become like them. You are inspired. You're motivated. I was driving the other day for work this past week, listening to a podcast. My father was talking about how he reads the Chronicles of Narnia with his two sons. And I was just unfolding all the richness with them in those stories. And just, I could hear the joy in his voice. I was listening like, I want to be that dad. I want to do that with my sons. I've been telling this week, Carly's been reading book, this uh, one particular book, uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory kind of book. Are we done with that book yet? Because I want to read the, I want to start reading the Narnia Chronicles again with them. So we, when we behold relationships, when we behold the Trinity and the beauty that's there, there's motivation for us as well to be changed, to want to be more holy, more righteous. So we're exalted to behold our triune God, and there's one other amazing thing to look at and behold, but not so much with our eyes as with our ears. Here again the words of the Father, verse 17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Behold the good pleasure, the delight, the joy that the Father takes in his Son. But don't just look at it. Nod your head. Look at it and tremble. Look at it and shake. Look at it and marvel. Because we read in Isaiah 53, if you'd turn there with me. Isaiah 53 7 through 11. Read about the good pleasure, the delight of God with me. Beginning in verse 7, Isaiah 53. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off? out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So what's the connection there? Again, verse, says, verse 10 says that it was the will of God. That word will in Hebrew, it means to desire, to delight in, to take pleasure in, to be pleased with. See the gospel here in this Old Testament prophecy about the future suffering servant. The father takes immense pleasure in his servant son and completely counter to what you or I would do with our sons and daughters. That pleasure doesn't cause him to protect his son at all costs. That pleasure causes him to put his son on the cross, to crush him, to put him to grief. How mysterious, how beyond searching out is the pleasure of God. But this wasn't some fiendish or sadistic pleasure of a grade school kid with an ant and a magnifying glass. This was the intentional, the all-wise, the sovereign good pleasure of a good God who brings triumph out of tragedy, life out of death. 
It was long before the foundation of the world that crushing his son, whom he took delight in, would, as Isaiah says, cause many to be accounted righteous, ultimately resulting in the praise of his glory. Church, don't miss out on this. You need to know deep down in your gut that if you are in Christ, if you have put your trust in him, that delight, that pleasure that the Father speaks over his Son, that is his pleasure that he takes in you now as well. Not because you're work, walking the perfect Christian life. Not because you're reading your Bible every day. Not because you are faithful to meet with him in prayer. Because you trust in Jesus. Because Jesus has done all those things. Again, his righteous, perfect life lived for you and I. That is our hope. That is our salvation. Romans eight fourteen through 17, Paul says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Daddy, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Growing up, I was the white sheep of the family. My brother was the black sheep. I had and still have a very loving family. But I knew God loved me because I was a moralist. I did everything right, everything good. I was the white sheep. I could easily just let all the grief and whatever flow to the black sheep and uh, have my shiny sterling image untarnished. I was in a relationship uh, in, college, in, excuse me, in high school uh, with a, a gal for two and a half years. And like many teenage relationships, that was a rocky relationship. And I am just the sort of person that I like to save. I like to try to heal, comfort. And I could not do that for her. I could not lift up her spirit that was so downcast so often. And so frequently throughout my junior year in, in high school, I had suicidal thoughts often. I had a knife that I would scratch and carve into my leg, her initials on one side, and why, the word why on the other, just so confused. I was a mess. I didn't know who I was or whose I was. I often thought of driving my car down to the train tracks in Edmonds there and just waiting for that last second before the train would come by and, because the world would be better off without me. That's what I thought. That's, those were the lies I believed. My view of God was that he was scowling at me for being such a failure, for so unable to lift her up. Why can't you help her, Nate? Why can't you save her? And it wasn't until actually my uh, freshman year of college that my identity, my view of who I am in God started to change. And it was when I read a book written by a recovering alcoholic who actually I think probably still dipped back in, back out, a book called Abba's Child. And it was just a book about, he wrote from his experience of being an utter failure but trusting in the radical, scandalous grace of God that he was Abba's child. Not because of what he did, because of what Jesus has done. I read that book, and everything changed for me. I still struggle daily to believe that not reading the Bible, not having prayed, that God's not mad or scowling. But that's my question for you. When you have a quiet moment yourself, in the car, laying your head down on the pillow at night, in the shower, wherever that is, when you... God sneaks up on you or you're trying to pursue God. What is his look on his face? Is he just disgusted with you? I mean, really? You, you come into my presence 
dare you? Clean yourself up first. My goodness. Is that his look on his face, in your heart, in your mind? Because I will tell you what, if that's what you're seeing, it's a lie. You need to take those thoughts captive and just cast them down, replace them with the truth that he is satisfied in you, he is delighted in you because of his son, Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the good news. I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know if you are in Christ or you are still a rebel, not in the family. But God and Matthew are all calling us this morning to behold our triune God, behold his suffering servant whom he was delighted in and pleased to crush for our salvation. And if you don't know him, believe in the one he has sent. Today is the day of salvation. You can come into the family of God. If you've been walking with Christ for a week or a year or a lifetime and you haven't been baptized yet, you haven't identified with Jesus, you haven't identified with his body through baptism, see one of us elders. Be baptized. Walk in obedience. Finally, for all of you who are in Christ and are still striving to shake this nagging sense that he is just pissed off at you. He's angry. He's mad. He is just so disgusted. Be still. Jesus is in a a trust fall of sorts. He's coming up out of the waters and he's not doing anything at this point. Just receiving. Receive the words of, of God. You are my beloved son. You, if you're in Christ, are my beloved daughter. With you, I am well pleased. Let's pray.